My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Walter Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand victor's justice through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, this podcast, or who we are, make sure to listen to our newly recorded introduction episode. Boulder, just in general, are you excited uh, about the topic of Victor's justice? Hi, Dario. Good to be here again. Yes, very much so, because this is our first episode of the new year of 2023, uh, which is exciting. And our perspectives on history, Victor's justice, uh, the way we, we revise history is such a fundamental aspect to all the other items that we talk about is that I think this is a very good way to start this new series. And because there's no housekeeping and no question of the week this week, let's start with the first category. And what are the facts? History has always been an area of contention and our interpretation of it has changed based on contemporary society and our recent experiences. There are two concepts important to changing our perception about history. First, historical revisionism is the reinterpretation of historical accounts based on challenging the orthodox views held by professional scholars about the past. This happens through introducing contrary evidence or reinterpreting the motivations and decisions of the people involved. Second, historical negationism, also called denialism, is the act of revising history based on selective coverage and memory of the past by ignoring facts that do not follow the wanted narrative or overemphasis of the wanted narrative. And ultimately, the worst part of it would be the falsification of facts. Victor's justice, on the other hand, refers to the distorted application of justice to the defeated party by the victorious party after an armed conflict or war. Victor's justice generally involves the excessive or unjustified punishment of defeated parties and the light punishment of the victors. Moving on to the next category. What is the bubble? So why is this topic so relevant to the Western bubble, Boulder? Well, as our listeners will know by now, um, the main objective of our podcast is to expose and thereby also um, strengthen our societies, to expose our society's um, tendency to misinterpret reality, to uh, be blinded by this Western bubble, blinded by our own sense of superiority and our own belief systems that that place other governance systems, other perspectives, other cultures at a lower level than our own and thereby essentially us, the West, whoever that is, shooting themselves in the foot, shooting ourselves in the foot, making our connection to reality uh, more fragile, less robust. And so historical revisionism uh, is an important aspect to how a society sees itself. How do we interpret history? How do we uh, understand where we come from and what our behavior has been in the past and how does that explain the present and the future? So when you have a West that has been so successful for such a long time and now uh, occupy such an important place in geopolitics, 
then there's a real risk that that society misinterprets history, denies certain aspects about their own history because they believe they are the winners of that history. And that's where it becomes a big problem because if once you believe that you are the winner, once you believe that you're the epitome of success, of historical success, you no longer learn about your own weaknesses, about your own fragility, about your own destructive behavior. And as a result, you're gonna make an increasing number of mistakes in the future. So you basically start losing grip on reality. Um, you start losing grip I, on reality, you start deluding yourself. And I, I think there's a few different examples that we want to talk about here. The most obvious one, uh, given our past episodes, would be the United Kingdom. However, we've already talked about the United Kingdom twice in our podcast so far. So today, when we're talking about societies that started to lose grip on reality, let's start with the Roman Empire. Um, so what happened there? What were the mechanisms that suddenly the Roman Empire started losing grip on, on reality? Well, it's, 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 it's really, the Roman Empire is a really good case study for us because obviously this is a podcast about the West. I'm sure that there are other um, examples from elsewhere in the world, but the West always looks at the Roman Empire as an important stepping stone towards our own superiority, right? So you've got ancient Greece, the Roman Empire, then the Dark Ages that we don't like talking about, and then our rise of um, the Renaissance and then Enlightenment, etc., Industrial Revolution, leads up to our brilliant success in the 21st century. Now, the Roman Empire, its strength, its robust nature, and this is not about morality, it's simply about their um, ability to uh, position themselves in antiquity as a force to be reckoned with, all comes from their republican period. It all comes from the time the, f the first 500 years of its existence, basically, where through very, by the way, very interesting dynamics that we don't have time for to, uh, to discuss in this episode, the Roman Empire builds a very strong internal system, uh, which then allows them to very effectively conquer other people. Now, this is not a moral judgment about whether conquest is good, but it made them historically successful. This was based on a real drive uh, that existed within Roman society to prove itself, to improve itself, to learn from others, to copy lessons from, for example, Athens and uh, the ancient Greeks, um, from other cultures, and this drive led them to historical success. Then, around roughly the year uh, 50, well, 30 uh, before Christ, BC, um, the internal makeup of the Roman Empire shifts into an imperial system. After, Jesus, uh, after uh, Julius Caesar, with Augustus, it, you, you get uh, an imperial Rome. And for the next 200 years, you get the, the, the Roman Empire that we typically think about, that has conquered most of the known world to the Romans, known to the Romans, um, that has a relative stability internally, and that is incredibly successful in establishing um, infrastructure, education, literature, those kinds of things. But it's exactly in those 200 years that the Romans start getting becoming full of themselves. They become deluded about their position in history. They think that they have a um, sort of inherent right to be where they are and to be the masters of the world as they know it. Whereas the only reasons why they're there in, let's say, 100 
uh, AD is because of those 500 years previously where the Republic worked really hard to set up this success, right? So you see that you have this Roman middle class, the, the Roman citizens that become basically deluded about what makes them successful rather than looking at reality of what made them strong in the first place and where they went wrong in the past. They start believing in the divine right, a divine nature of being Roman that allows them to be where they are. And some Roman authors actually write about this. Tacitus is very critical of Roman society at the time and, and, uh, and the oppression that he perceives exists with the imperial Rome. But the drive to improve and to learn is gone. People sit back on their laurels, if you like. And the result is that 100 years after that, the Roman Empire starts collapsing. And 250 years after that, the Roman Empire is essentially gone. Um, so here the important thing is stage one, building up. Stage two, self-satisfied smugness. And then stage three, destruction of your civilization. And that is kind of the pattern that you see throughout history happening. So this dynamic is not exclusive to societies because we also see this within individuals. I mean, we're thinking about what Hitler, Napoleon, or Putin. And I think Napoleon here is the most interesting example because it follows a very similar pattern to the one of the Roman Empire. By 1806 or 1807, Napoleon had, was at the peak of his power, at the peak of his success. And what you see in his own behavior, that he becomes... Um, less critical of his own abilities. He believes that, for example, invading Russia is something that he can take on now because he had this military success previously. That is a clear sign of no longer sufficiently being in touch with reality. And that leads to then 1812, 1813, and then Waterloo, of course, uh, the collapse of his empire and the collapse of his position. It is a very common psychological process that you see within society and in individuals drive to improve yourself in your position, initial great success, then a period of stability which you misinterpret as a divine right to that success rather than the result of your very hard work at the beginning, and then a collapse of your position um, in later years. So it is this psychological attitude within us humans that we you know we simply like winning, but we don't like losing. We even look down on failure. That, that is something that everyone probably listening to this recognizes at some level. Um, we as human beings want to be associated with success. We want to be associated with the winners. We want to be associated with those things we admire. And when someone doesn't represent those aspects or society doesn't um, represent those aspects, we look down on them. Maybe not consciously, like, oh, I look down on you, but certainly subconsciously. You see a homeless person in the street, even if you show empathy or you feel uh, that, you, that you should help that person, you also have a psychological mechanism that says that person is a loser and I'm kind of better than that person because I can help that person. Um, sort of that Mother Teresa complex, right? Um, the idea of me helping you puts me in a position above you morally. And the other way around, the moment you have someone that can help you, let's say a billionaire that can offer you a job or that can offer you a uh, business opportunities, you look up towards them. And 
the fact that you need them, that they are somehow economically or otherwise better than you, means that you will interpret them as something more positive than you should. And you interpret the homeless person as something as someone more negative than you should. So then the mechanism of this within the Western bubble and looking at historical negationism is let's only look at the, you know, wins and the highlights of Western history. But we, and I, I, I don't want to say we actively forget about them, you know. I don't think it's an active process where we say, you know, let's not talk about it, the Iraq war. But it's in subconscious action where we simply like to forget mentioning these things because it doesn't make us feel very good about ourselves. It does make us very good about ourselves and we, and, and I, we argue it away subconsciously or consciously as something like oh those were small missteps or these were small problems and yeah it's not great that it happens but the bigger picture is the picture that i want to portray about success i don't like thinking of myself as a bad person i don't like to think about my society as a bad society because i love myself or i love my society and somehow critically looking at my previous steps in life or previous centuries as a society somehow seems disloyal towards myself or towards my society. So, uh, yeah, we understand that sometimes things don't go well, but we prefer to write about all the good things we did and all the heroic things we did and all the wonderful things. And this is, you know, just have one look at linkedin or at social media and how many people actually write about their mistakes or about their failures very few most people advertise all the good things that they have done over the past year or all the wonderful comments or reviews they've received from customers or uh, colleagues or students uh, rather than saying hey you know what i really messed up three months ago i just want to share this with you because it's useful to know nobody or very few people do this so then let's look how this You know, this mechanism behind the Western bubble, historical negationism, translates into reality. Um, and there's three examples that we've, we've picked out. So the first one is, you know, just forgetting certain acts of cruelty in particular. Uh, the first one that comes to mind would be colonialism. Yeah, so even though the way that we nowadays in the 21st century talk about colonialism is a bit different than, for example, what we did when I was a child in the 80s or 90s, it's become a little bit more advanced and a little bit more modest than before, you still very much see this overall tendency of saying, okay, look, Europeans were incredibly successful. Um, they were advanced scientifically. Look at the amazing explora uh, explorers who went across the globe heroically discovering, and I put it in quotation mark, which isn't visible in a podcast, Uh, discovering uh, the Americas, discovering Asia, discovering uh, Australia, and we gave it our own name. And unfortunately, of course, during that time, we also did a few things that weren't great. Whereas probably a much more objective analysis would be, hang on, this was an aggressive and often cruel imperialistic Europe that imposed itself on the rest of the world and yes there were some nice things about it as well like there's something nice about sailors exploring the oceans sure nothing wrong with the sailor exploring the oceans and coming across people that they haven't been in touch with before that's brilliant but 
surely a more objective analysis is actually emphasizing the cruel, aggressive, imperial conquest that Rome, that, that Europeans engaged in during colonial times. And yet we turn it around, right? Our, our, our overall narrative is the opposite. This was a time of European success, where unfortunately Europeans once in a while also did something that isn't pretty. And another example closer to our times would be World War II. Um, and here, I mean, there is a lot of talk, and we're going to go further into detail about this on uh, when we talk about Victor's justice, but there's a lot of talk about, you know, what the Nazis did, what the communists did, what the baddies do. Um, however, there's very little talk about the actions and the implications of the actions of the Allied uh, nations. So, I mean... The example that in Germany always comes up is the bombing of Dresden, which was, well, militarily and strategically unnecessary. Um, but then, you know, the more extreme example here is obviously the nuclear bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Absolutely. And whether there was some military purpose or not to both of those cases that you mentioned, um, because you can always argue, look, it accelerated a little bit uh, the end of the war. Certainly in the case of Japan, there's always this continuous debate, like how many American soldiers would have died if they invaded Japan? Uh, those kind of questions almost seem irrelevant to me because this is one country that dropped two atomic bombs on another country, regardless of the circumstances. Surely that in itself is a crime against humanity uh, to, it, with two bombs, kill that many people voluntarily without you existentially being threatened at that time anymore. Because both Dresden and the atomic bombs in Japan were at a time that nobody doubted that Germany and Japan would be defeated. I mean, that was completely obvious. The question is, was when and in what way? So regardless of the military purpose behind it, which was probably minimal, but regardless of that, how come that we actually debate the morality of two, dropping two nuclear weapons on a country? This is a really, really good example of how we tweak our historical awareness in a way that fits the narrative that we need to have in the present day, in contemporary times. Because communism was bad and is bad according to our current system. Nazis were bad according to our current system. Therefore, it is fine to engage in behavior that in no other circumstance we would agree with. And that is, of course... Um, very self-destructive because it means that we do not sufficiently learn about our own identity and we are much more likely to make these similar mistakes in the future. The last example I want to talk about with regards to historical negationism is it's it's not as aggressive or it's not as, you know, militarily aggressive, but it's, you know, believing that all science of the world, you know, all the scientific discoveries uh, that we enjoy nowadays, that they are Western, that they are inherently Western, completely ignoring that, you know, the, especially the Middle East, you know, the Fertile Crescent used to be the birthplace of so many scientific inventions that we still benefit from today. Yeah, and again, here it is about emphasis, right? Because any, I would like to think any reasonable a knowledgeable person would acknowledge that there have also been non-Western scientists, but the overall tone is the West 
has scientifically created the world that we live in today. And yes, there may have been some Muslim scholars, and yes, there may have been some Jewish scholars, and some some people in China also did some stuff. But uh, in the end, the West is responsible for all these advances that we are enjoying today. And of course, that is so very far away from reality. The West has been very productive over the past few hundred years. Absolutely. More productive, probably scientifically, than other regions in the world. But that is related to the fact that we're talking about economic and geopolitical dominance over the past few hundred years of the West. If we had had this conversation in the 11th or 12th century, the West would have been nowhere in terms of scientific uh, progress. It the, All those foundations that afterwards Western scholars built on were built up in the Muslim world and on the other side of the world, China, where China was scientifically way more advanced than anything that Europe could ever cough up. So let's move on from historical negationism to Victor's justice. And here, I think the first one and the most prominent example that always comes up are the Nuremberg trials. So the trials were the, were the four winning allies of France, the United Kingdom, the United States, and the Soviet Union at this time. Uh, they basically set up trial, and one judge from each country was then uh, ruling over, uh, you know, the, the German officials involved in, in the Second World War and, more importantly, in the Holocaust. And I know that here in Germany they are not as controversial. Um, it's usually analyzed from a point of view from international law. Can you determine that, you know, despite these actions being completely legal under the German law at the time, can they be declared illegal under some form of international humanitarian law? Um, so there was, you know, that element. But I know that internationally, especially from, you know, an Anglo-Saxon perspective, this is sometimes debated in a different way. Right. Not that often. I would, I would think, but please correct me if I'm wrong here, Dario, that the reason why it's not very controversial in Germany is that that would then lead to Germans almost implying that Germans shouldn't have been punished for the deeds of the Second World War. And that's, of course, the last thing that Germany wants to imply. Uh, so therefore, it is, it, is, it is trickier in Germany to talk about it than in the rest of the world. But if you look at the nature of the Nuremberg trials, we should, of course, start by acknowledging the obvious fact that 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 it was only just and proper to put the criminals um, the genocidal maniacs and everyone else responsible for the holocaust um, on trial obviously i mean there's 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 absolutely no argument there but if you look at the very nature of how the nuremberg trials were set up this was the loser of the war which was responsible for horrible acts the loser of the war being tried by judges from the three winners or four winners if you can france britain the united states and the soviet union they provided the judges who were now who, who were now going to pass judgment on their defeated enemies that by itself as a mechanism is already a very dodgy mechanism because in there you already cannot really talk about justice in any moral sense because this is the winner punishing the loser. Um, if it had been a a, a trial um, executed by people from all over the world, including, I don't know, uh, people from Zambia and people from Colombia and people from Argentina and, 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 and people from... And China, 
then then maybe there would have been a different uh, story to tell here. But this was the winners imposing their wrath upon the losers. Now, in this case, a lot of those losers deserve the wrath, but the mechanism was has nothing to do with fairness. And more importantly, the mechanism did not include any of the acts, you mentioned Dresden before, uh, any of the acts committed by the Allies. Nobody judged Allied behavior. Nobody investigated Allied behavior. The, the behavior of Allied soldiers entering Berlin at the end of the war and the horrible stories of their behavior within Berlin, the unnecessary destruction caused, um, the, the, the cruel punishment of uh, German and other civilians who were who had you know who had very little responsibility for any of the uh, crimes committed those deeds were never investigated so this is the very essence of Victor's justice where you say we as winners are selectively gonna select are selectively going to look at who we investigate. We're selectively going to judge people and we're going to ignore ourselves. The next example, and by the way, all of all three examples have to do with Germany. Um, I'm going to claim this uh, simply because I, these are the examples that I will know about the most, are the DDR trials, as they're called in Germany. Um, so the Democratic Republic of, of Germany, East Germany, um, that after uh, unification, um, so after Germany was unified, uh, the West and the East uh, came together, which is already a difficult you know, phrasing of it, when then, um, especially the border guards, uh, the ones who were shooting at people trying to cross from the East into the West and killed uh, somewhere, I think, 400 people, when they were put on trial um, as well. And then from a, you know, from a West German perspective, from Western, it wasn't Western German judges, but Eastern German courts at that time were a direct, basically, extension of Western uh, German courts. And they were basically trialed by uh, the victor. And you not only had that, but you also, and that's the example you always bring up, you also had Eastern German spies being trialed, while Western German spies uh, were not. It, I, I don't know how this was, or how this is looked at within Germany, but from a Dutch perspective, even at the time, I remember it, I was young, but my family was very much, you know, interested in these items, and we discussed these things a lot over dinner, and paying keen attention, I it was completely obvious to me and to everyone around me that this was a takeover of Eastern Germany by Western Germany without any recognition of the, the, the rights of Eastern Germany to have done its own Westphalian deeds within a Westphalian system, right? Um, is that something that, that, that is discussed in Germany in these days? So when it comes to the trials, not. Uh, so the victor's justice, uh, not necessarily. I mean, this is already going a bit into the next category, what's the damage, um, but it's more discussed from a perspective of it wasn't so much of a unification, it was more West Germany absorbing East Germany. Um, yeah, there was very little, you know, there was very little form of, uh, oh, let's, let's take the best of both systems and combine them. For an example, um, uh, due, due to the nature of the system, the differences between men and women in, in wages in East Germany are very low compared to the West. That Those lessons learned were never taken, um, and so it was really just the West absorbing the East. 
And the result, of course, would then be that you have a large segment of the country that feels under-recognized, under-appreciated, and kind of secondary citizen, because their customs and their traditions built up over decades are not being recognized. Their legal system is basically thrown out of the window. And the more powerful tribe, the Western tribe, basically rules the country that they are now part of. And that, of course, leads to all kinds of long-term problems, I would assume. Exactly. I mean, so now this is really already the damages. But uh, if you if you look at the political map uh, of Germany, um, before the rise of the alternative Germ- uh, of Germany, a more right-wing party, it was always the left-wing extreme um, that, that gained the most votes, like in, uh, compared to the west of Germany, like a, a disproportional high because they called them protest votes. Um, so there's about 20 to 30% of, of East Germans that do not feel like any of the traditional parties in the country reflect them, and therefore they uh, vote out of protest for extreme parties. Surely there's one principle of justice that applies to, to any reasonable framework, namely that if I live today in a society that allows me to do something and tomorrow society changes its laws, its legal system, changes its morality and says, you're no longer allowed to do that. I can't be punished for doing those things that I used to do before. So, for example, if um, before I would be allowed to drive 140 on the motorway and now society says you can only drive 100 because it's better for the environment and it's too dangerous to go faster, then surely I can't get a policeman um, arresting me or fining me for having gone 140 when it was still allowed. And that seems exactly what has happened with East Germany, right? East German behavior was allowed under the East German system. West Germany takes over and not only says, hey, now East Germans, you have to change your behavior, but we're also going to judge you for your behavior when you were allowed to do these things. And then the third period of German history or recent history that people remember uh, would be World War I. And this is also the third example we want to bring up, but not necessarily the actions of uh, the German armed forces during World War I, but rather the Treaty of Versailles um, afterwards. So the treaty um, that basically determined, I think it's in the article, in article 213 or 230, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, dear listeners, uh, please send an email, um, where it's uh, dealing with the reparations that Germany has to pay to the rest of Europe and to France in particular. And it's a ridiculously high amount. We're talking about uh, hundred, billions of, of Deutsche Marke time. Um, and it was, I mean, well, there are different historical accounts on this. Some say it was clear from the beginning that Germany would never be able to pay for this. Some others say it was more the political will. But both... Uh, interpretations show into the same direction is that either you cripple the German economy, which is referred to as a Carthaginian peace, uh, where you cripple the economy and the you know system of the defeated party to the extent that it will never rise up again and never be of danger to you again. Um, so this interpretation, you again have this massive humiliation uh, to, to the Germans. And this is also how we were taught some of the origins of World War II in Germany, is that people feeling absolutely humiliated by the West, uh, by the rest of Europe um, and hoping to regain power and prestige. And if you look at the other interpretation, where it's only about the politi- lack of political will to actually pay these reparations, it points in the same direction, where it was seen as a humiliation. So here you see how, and we're going to go into the damage um, 
again, already a little bit, uh, where, I mean, you have Victor's justice or a form of Victor's justice leading up to, you know, one of the biggest catastrophes that human humanity knows until today. And this is such an interesting example for these two, for two reasons, namely that one, um, the First World War was not a morally righteous war on any side. There's, a, there's of course, an overwhelming case to be made that in the Second World War, Germany was were the bad guys and um, the Allies in the world were the good guys. In this, and we know this because of the Holocaust. Um, there is a strong case, slightly less obvious, but a strong case to be made that the East Bloc the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union were on shakier moral grounds than the West. So you, you can see how we look at um, the, the collapse of the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union as a good thing in history. But with this First World War, there is no such moral judgment to be ever made. These were two power blocks that just clashed into each other for with different perspectives, different ideologies, but it's very hard to make the case that one was morally superior to the other. So that would mean that at the end of the war, punishment of the defeated party surely requires a certain modesty on behalf of the victors. They, you know, you would like them to understand that this wasn't a major victory for morality or humankind. This was just a military victory by one of the two power blocks, not much else. And yet, we have rewritten history in a way as if the First World War and Second World War were both incredibly moral enterprises, whereas that's only true for one of them. Now, the second reason why this is so interesting is that this is the perfect example, talking about the damages, of how rewriting or being biased in your historical interpretation, um, self-serving historical interpretation and victor's justice, how they come to bite you later on. Because nobody can argue that the Second World War in any way was beneficial to Great Britain or France. I mean, obviously they weren't. They were incredibly damaging to Britain and France. So then if you look at what led up to the Second World War and you study how Britain and France imposed victor's justice on Germany with the Versailles Treaty, surely it makes sense to say, okay, what did we do wrong here, being London or being Paris? Where did we go wrong? Oh, you know what? We shouldn't have engaged in victor's justice. But that kind of exercise doesn't happen because of our myopic nature when it comes to historical morality. Now that we've been talking about the damage so so much, let's officially move into the category. And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? And let's start all the way at the top again uh, of these six examples we mentioned. Um, so on historical negationism, what's the damage of you know forgetting certain acts and the cruelty of certain acts? And we we mentioned colonialism here. What's the damage of that? The result of that is that you paint an overly rosy picture of who you are or who you have been, either as a society or as an individual. And that means that you are going to be delusional about your weaknesses and delusional about your strength. You're going to overemphasize your strength, everything that's good about yourself. You're going to underemphasize everything that's maybe weaker about yourself, that requires work, that requires reflection. 
and it makes it much more likely that you continue the destructive acts that you engaged in in the past, right? Uh, it also means that it's going to be much harder for you to connect to your surroundings that were the victim of your mistakes. So if you are colonial power, and uh, let's say the Netherlands, and you are unaware or you have filtered out the dark behavior of the Dutch versus Indonesia, then now in 2023, if you're a Dutch diplomat, you're going to have a very hard time connecting to Indonesia, even when it comes to business deals or anything like that, because you don't understand why they look suspiciously at you. You don't understand that their grandfather has been killed by people from your country. And as a result, you're not going to be able to effectively relate to that world because you have no clue about what your actions were. Um, this can also be put at an individual level as someone, if I, um, if 10 years ago you and I met and I stabbed you with a, a knife in your side and then I move on and I forget about that and then I meet you again 10 years later, then I shouldn't be surprised that somehow my relationship with you is difficult. If I, if I had remembered, maybe I could have given you flowers and apologized. Oh, I should never have done that. Please forgive me. Can we still do a podcast together? But if I forget, there's no way for me to build that bridge with you. And my, my connection to you and my connection to myself is weaker as a result. So it actually makes a, a lot of self-interested sense to not forget about our dark behavior. Because it makes us strong, stronger in the present and in the future. And what's the damage if you don't stab me with a knife, but you drop a nuclear bomb on me? Well, that's, I mean, that's exactly, I mean, in many ways, it is amazing how the United States and the West has gotten away with some of these things. I mean, dropping a nuclear bomb, um, being responsible for tens of millions of deaths in uh, Latin America during colonization, tens of millions of deaths in the long term in Asia, in Africa, uh, slavery, the enormous crimes that Europeans and the West have committed over the past few hundred years. The only reason why we get away with it, we have gotten away with it so far until this moment, is because we're still kind of in charge of global dynamics and people, you know, it would be too costly for people to really hold us to account. But be careful because the West is on the decline and 50 or 100 years from now, people might actually start remembering um, things that we did. So let's move on to Victor's justice. Uh, we already talked about the damage of the, you know, the DDR trials and how Eastern Germans feel absorbed and not unified and how this leads to political differences. Now we've talked about the damages of the Treaty of Versailles. However, we haven't talked about the damages of the Nuremberg trials yet. So what are the damages except that justice wasn't really served? Right, and that in itself is already a serious damage, right? It's just harder to quantify or to specify because then you get into what is justice, what is the importance of justice. But as a general remark, we can say not providing justice about historical crimes or historical damage leads to long-term dark patterns, people feeling left out. And so we need to... We need to identify that. But more importantly, simply from a self-awareness perspective, from an awareness, from a making us be better at what we do over time. And surely that needs to be the goal of any society. 
the lack of introspection when it came to the Nuremberg trials, the lack of holding to account allied behavior means that we build this knowledge that is visible on a daily basis in our society in 2023, that the West is inherently incapable of engaging in structural destructive behavior. That, that when we are engaged in a war, it is a, it's a just war because we are the West, so we always engage in just wars. And, and when in that war something happens that may seem immoral, it is an unfortunate mistake, but not something that we have to take very seriously. Whereas another type of interpretation after the Second World War would have been, okay, we're all very happy that we won and that the Nazis lost. That's good news for the world. Despite the incredible damage that um, was caused during this time period, however, we were also a belligerent party. And let's have a clear look at all the things where we actually did things we shouldn't have done. And let's make that list um, be pinned on every wall of every military commander to make sure that in the future we don't do it again. That would have been incredibly useful, but we didn't do that. So another part of the damages um, that's you know not as serious maybe on a policy because it's not on a policy making level, but we stumble upon this while preparing for this episode because let's be honest, everyone's to go to source for anything ever is of course Wikipedia. Um, but when it comes to the Wikipedia article on historical negationism, there is something concerning. And so overall to listeners, I mean, don't be surprised if the English uh, Wikipedia article uh, is written with a Western bias. Uh, I, I don't think there would be, uh, I don't think anybody should be surprised about this. But in this article in particular, it stood out to us that after the definition, the author included some examples of historical uh, negationism. And those include... The Holocaust denial, the Armenian genocide denial, the lost cause of the Confederacy, the myth of the clean Wehrmacht, Japanese history book uh, contro uh, controversies, the Holodomor denial, and the historiography in the Soviet Union during the Stalin era. Boller, what's problematic with, with, with these? Uh, well, if you actually look at this list, <laughs> they are all criticizing those that we reject historically from a Western perspective. So we, um, we reject, of course, Holocaust denial. So therefore, we use that as an example. Okay, fine. We are, we are on the winning side. It's, it's, and, you know, the West is proud of having stopped the Holocaust, rightfully so. Mother. The lost cause of the Confederacy. We like the fact that the North has won because slavery was bad. And we, we used now the example of the Confederacy uh, Lost Cause mythology as an example of, of um, negationism. Japanese textbook controversy. We don't like what the Japanese did. So we use that once again as an example. We don't like Stalin. So we talk about the Soviet Union during the Stalin era. The point he here is that all of these examples are about others. It's they're not about our current Western society actually engaging in negationism, whereas we very much do. Because what are some of the examples um, that we should include? I mean, the first one that, you know, we thought in the preparation of this episode was the Crusades. I, the Crusades, I don't know how they're being told at schools right now. Uh, my son is slightly too young still to, um, to have that at school, uh, but... Over the past 
40 or 50 years at least, Crusades have been portrayed as brave knights in the West. Crusades have been portrayed as brave knights fighting in the Holy Lands against dark-skinned others, right? Muslims, but uh, people who don't look like us. Whereas, of course, if you look at a more realistic approach, it was Christian barbaric invaders without any real moral compass um, in invading another society. Yet that's not how it's being told. It's always about the brave knights fighting against the barbarians, which is, of course, absolutely negationism of reality. We listed a few other uh, examples to quickly go through them. Um, Dutch students, my country, uh, learning about the adventurous VOC, the East Indies Company uh, of colonial times, sailing the oceans and fighting pirates rather than the local cruelty that they inflicted. Um, lack of recognition of the Soviet role in defeating Nazi Germany. Um, if you look at the number of victims in the Second World War, uh, I believe that the UK and the United States uh, had something like 450,000 people dying. The Soviet Union, something like 23, 24 million people dying. That is never recognized in Western literature in a significant way. It's as if, as if the Soviets were only a sideshow to defeating Nazi Germany, because we don't like the Soviet Union. Um, Dutch or Polish populations pretending that the Holocaust was committed purely by Germans, whereas we know that Dutch and Polish administrations, governments, civil servants, but also the general population happily helped in many cases with putting Jewish people into trains and sending them to Auschwitz and elsewhere. Um, Hollywood films, um, if anyone has seen the 1960s film called Zulu with Michael Caine, where brave British soldiers um, heroically fight off hordes of Zulu barbarians. Um, I don't think I even need to go into why that is <laughs> a complete distortion of what reality was like. Um, Black Hawk Down about the crisis in Somalia where 17 US soldiers died. Um, if, you look, if you watch that film, it is as if uh, the Somalis are just barbarians uh, dangerous creatures about to to eat the U.S. soldiers alive. And every time a U.S. soldier dies, it is with slow motion and tragic music. And every time a Somali person dies, it is as if we're talking about animals rather than actual human beings. Um, another example, Western foreign policy towards the Middle East in the 80s and 90s, which then led to an awful lot of destruction afterwards. The West trained and equipped Osama bin Laden as part of the Mujahideen fighting in Afghanistan against Soviet Union. Um, the West supported Saddam Hussein in a barbaric invasion of Iran. No one actually is interested in analyzing what went wrong there. Some academics are, but not in a general population media perspective. Um, much closer to home, ignoring the Iraq war in school curriculums, ignoring the deaths in Iraq in the 1990s after the um, embargoes, the sanctions were placed on Saddam Hussein's regime. Hundreds of thousands of children died because of those Western imposed sanctions. Nobody talks about that. Um, at least half a million Iraqis died as, as part of the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Nobody really seems to care about that. It is, it is shocking if you start making this list how many examples of us actually negating realities from history are not being um, discussed. And then a Wikipedia article only talking about the things that we like discussing rather than our own 
issues that we feel uncomfortable about. So let's move on to the last category. And what now? So what do we do from here? I mean, how do we do we revise history books? Well, here's the thing. So history in itself, the the discipline of history is not about the past, but it's about our most realistic, our best interpretation of the past, right? Our best guess of what actually happened, if you like. And so it's perfectly right for society to continuously engage in revisionism. That's what we do. That's fine. Now, ideally, based on what we just said, you would like us to become better and better at neutrally or at least objectively or at least self-critically evaluating these historical, uh, historical events so that we can become better as a society, so that we can learn from our mistakes much more so than learn of the, from the mistakes of others. In many ways, it's not very interesting to learn about the mistakes of um, those who we defeated. I mean, that is not our purpose. Surely we need to learn about what we did wrong and how we can do better in the future. Unfortunately, what you see is that the dynamics go in the other direction. We live in such a tribal time when it comes to the internet, social media, is that you are almost not allowed to question the validity of your tribe, to question the superiority of your tribe, whether it's a Western tribe or left-wing tribe or right-wing tribe. And as a result, history becomes this playing, this, this history becomes this toy that we shape according to our own image, depending on political circumstance, rather than actually engaging in history as a serious discipline that needs to be understood in the best way possible. And based on this, we actually have some homework for our listeners here, because we are really interested in how were you taught about the Iraq war, um, about one or two, <laughs> choose either one of them, um, because we could not figure out, you know, how is it being taught in schools right now, or how is it being taught in universities, or did people learn about it at all? And so it would be really, really great from all of our listeners if you could send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and quickly let us know um, how was the Iraq war taught to you. And whether it was taught at all, of course. And this seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on Victor's justice. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Also, don't forget your homework. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Balder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? I've gone back to an old favorite who I already quoted once before about we shouldn't ever have enough of him. It's from uh, George Orwell, 1984. I know it's a cliche. Um, there, there is the sentence that goes, who controls the past? When the party slogan controls the future, who controls the present controls the past. Mm -hmm.